Welcome to the OC24 podcast, where we've taken some of the best talks and discussions from this year's 24-hour conference on global organised crime, which showcases some of the most interesting research into organised crime around the world. This episode is called Organised Crime in Latin America. What's new? Thank you very much for uh, coming and attending this, um, this conference and this panel in particular. We are going to... Um, talk today in this panel on organized crime in Latin America, what's new? Um, and I think it's, uh, we have a, a very exciting uh, lineup of um, if presenters today. We're going to slightly amend the order. I'm going to tell you in a moment about that. But basically, I think the panel is going to revolve, revolve around um, Things that are a little bit more already known um, in Latin America, the main problem of organized crime is drug trafficking, in particular the cocaine trafficking. And uh, um, some of the presentations are going to talk about how um, the drug trafficking has been changing in Latin America, adding new markets and routes to the traditional ones and how criminal organizations have been exercising criminal governance in order to guarantee their domain on certain territories. We're going to talk as well about how other manifestations of organized crime have, uh, such as human trafficking, illegal mining, environmental crimes, and cyber crime, have gained importance in Latin America. For that, we are going to start our presentation with, uh, or we are going to start our panel with Mariano Bartolomé because he will have to leave for a, for probably a few minutes, half an hour or so, to another meeting. So we are going to start with him. Um, Mariano has a PhD. He's professor, permanent professor of cybersecurity and public security. Um, at the Inter-American Defense College in, the, in Washington, USA. So Mariano, your seven minutes. Thank you so much. Uh, before I start my presentation, Andrea, thank you for letting me be the first speaker. I really appreciate it. And I'll apologize of uh, my lack of time. The title of my presentation is Cybercrime in Latin America in Times of COVID, I will share my presentation. Well, my name is Mariana Bartolomé and I am currently working at the Inter-American Defense College as a permanent professor on cybersecurity and public security. Today, cybercrime is one of the main topics in the field of cybersecurity and that's why we at the AADC are doing a research on its situation. Uh, in this regard, I would like to share with you some preliminary uh, ideas. Yeah? First, uh, the so-called cybercrime refers to, it, to the development of criminal activities in cyberspace. As we all know, the COVID-19 pandemic increased the number of internet users as well as uh, all kinds of activities in cyberspace. And obviously different forms of, of cybercrime also increased. For example, the illegal trade on the dark web uh, of vaccines and medicines against COVID-19. 
But more important were the new crimes that can only be done using computers, computer networks, or other forms of information and communication technologies. According to Interpol, due to COVID-19, there was a sharp increase worldwide in cases of so-called phishing, which is a deception to obtain personal data useful for carrying out fraud and other crimes. Uh, there was also a dramatic increase in malware attacks, especially ransomware, which block users' access to their computer system in exchange of, uh, for a ransom payment. Latin America followed the trends observed globally. And in this context, uh, we would like to share with you five points about our region. The first one, since the beginning of the pandemic COVID-19, cyber attacks by criminals have increased in the region. Attacks on business and companies are almost twice as high as those on personal users. Most of the cases, around 75%, have death in Brazil and Mexico, which can be explained by the size of their populations. The point uh, number two, today, the main form of cybercrime in Latin America is ransomware. As we said before, this is the crime in which the cybercriminal encrypts the information on a computer or device and demands a, a kind of ransom from the victim to unlock the computer and free their data. Here in the, in the figure, you can, you can see the position of Mexico in the place number six and Brazil in the place number nine worldwide. Yeah, uh, our point number three, in 2020, uh, two, two Latin American countries ranked at the top 10 most ransomware attacked countries all over the world. Mexico, as, as, as I already said, in, in this uh, place number six, with more than 4 million attacks, and Brazil in a place number nine, with almost 4 million attacks. The point number four, for this year, 2021, between January and, and August, cyber attacks in Latin America increased around 24% compared to the same period in 2020. Cyber attacks increased in all Latin American countries with only one exception, Costa Rica, and Brazil led the rise, followed by Mexico. And the point number five, uh, between January and August 2021, the use of phishing decreased. But several countries in the region are still among the most affected by this technique in the world. Brazil is in the first place with 15% of users who recorded an um, attack attempt. As a preliminary conclusion in this phase of our research, cybercrime is a very important aspect of today's organized crime. It has grown in the last two years thanks to the pandemic COVID-19 and has a strong presence in Latin America. 
uh, a strong and growing and rising presence in Latin America. So thank you uh, very much for your attention. I hope this data is useful or of interest um, to you. Unfortunately, I have another obligation now and mostly leave this, the, the session, but I will try to, to be back quickly for Q&A before closing. Thank you, Andrea, and dear colleagues for your attention. Thank you, Mariano. And I'm leaving the session right now. Thank you very much, and thank you for keeping, keeping to the time. Um, okay, thank you. So I forgot to say, what we will do is have all the presentations now um, and, then, um, and then open the, the floor or the screen, the Zoom um, up for uh, questions, right? So our second presenter is Adriana Abdenur. She has a PhD from Princeton University. She's director of Plataforma CIPO and she's senior policy fellow at the United Nations University Center for Policy Research. Adriana, all yours. Thank you very much, Andrea. It's a pleasure to be part of this panel with so many friends and colleagues. Uh, let me be, I'll try to be very brief. Um, my presentation is based on work that we have been carrying out at Plataforma CIPO and specifically a report that's coming out uh, later this month on the idea of environmental crime as uh, organized crime. And while this may seem uh, quite obvious to those of us who follow this issue and, and who think about the ongoing ecological crisis, for most of history, environmental crimes have really been treated, whether explicitly or not, as victimless. And what do we mean by victimless crimes? I and mean, th this is a term that is uh, sometimes used with reference to crimes that either involve only the perpetrator or that occur between consenting adults. And so uh, understanding environmental crimes as victimless crimes, it presupposes that the environment is either infinite or that it's expendable, um, that these activities such as illegal deforestation, uh, illegal mining, illegal logging, uh, wildlife trafficking, just to name a few, that they have no real direct harm to human beings or that the benefits of these crimes uh, outweigh the costs, not just for the perpetrators, but for others who, um, who are involved or society as a whole, really. And this is actually the kind of foundational logic behind the current and traditional development model that's been applied in, for instance, rainforest areas like the Amazon. This is also fed by a very common but outdated narrative that environmental crimes, for instance, in the Amazon, which is where we focus uh, most of our, our research on environmental crimes, that it's a question of survival for low income uh, residents, uh, including migrants, but also indigenous communities, Afro-descending communities like Quilombolas uh, here in Brazil. Uh, and so this, this is a very common narrative is that uh, the, in, in the absence of alternatives to income generation, that this is a necessary activity. And as I'll explain, this is partly true, but it's become much less true. And that's not where the focus should be definitely when we think about law enforcement. 
what this um, presumption of environmental crimes as victimless has led to is A, uh, these are very low priorities, not just pro for prosecutors, but also for law enforcement agencies and even international cooperation organizations. Two, that there has been a very compartmentalized approach in law enforcement with, for instance, prosecutors that specialize in environmental crimes, but that don't look necessarily at other types of criminal activity that are associated with and that also feed into or are fed by environmental crimes. And the overall resort, uh, result, of course, is very widespread impunity. In Brazil, for instance, it's a tiny, tiny percentage of environmental crimes that are actually persecuted. Um, and more broadly, there is a culture of impunity that of course now is being fed into by the current government in Brazil. And so what we need, and I think it's underway now as more people in organizations understand the nature of the ecological crisis and the political um, underpinnings of this crisis is a shift in understanding and the adoption of the lens of organized crime, not only for a better analytical understanding, but also recommendations for how law enforcement can improve in the react responses to, but also prevention of these crimes. So the basic idea, of course, is that environmental crimes, they actually impact all of society and that victims are victimized in many different ways. And the, the recent literature has shed light on many of these aspects. I'll just name a few. Uh, obviously, with environmental degradation, we have not just deforestation, but extensive pollution and contamination, for instance, of rivers in the Amazon due to the use of mercury in gold mining. And this endangers food, water, energy security at many different levels. But we also know now that environmental crimes have a very heavy and uh, climate footprint, not just because of the direct activities that they entail, for instance, the illegal logging, but also because the activities for which they open up room are among the most uh, uh, greenhouse gas emitting anywhere. So for instance, agriculture and you know beef raising, um, or soybean raising, which are, are the main sources of pressure on the Amazon rainforest. They're very, very uh, big emitters of greenhouse gases. But of course, we also know that local communities, especially indigenous and Afro-descending communities are subject to the creation of pockets of poverty, to forced displacement, um, to violence and crime. So we know when we look at patterns of environmental crimes that those areas present the most high, uh, the highest levels of homicides, sexual exploitation, and they're also hubs of human trafficking. So for instance, in the Western Amazon in the state of Pará, where we do some of our field research, um, many of the municipalities in Pará where that are the hotspots of illegal deforestation and now gold mining are also among the municipalities in Brazil with the highest levels of homicide. Uh, we know that some of these impacts reach way beyond the regions. Um, there's research showing that decreased water supply here in Rio de Janeiro or in Sao Paulo are affected by deforestation and the, uh, the, the decrease in the availability of, of water that comes from the Amazon. So we really have to um, look uh, through you know, the lens of organized crime and understand that 
yes, at the front edge, we have individuals who uh, resort to environmental crimes for income, but behind them, there are uh, very sophisticated networks uh, and very massive financing. Um, so we have to understand the organizational dynamics, including, for instance, the division of labor, the use of new technologies, which is very sophisticated, and often the transnational ties that are established by these networks, as well as the flexibility that they are acquiring in terms of the different, uh, the, the wide range of activities they uh, participate in. And here in Brazil, what we're seeing now, and this is something that happens in Colombia now for a longer period, is closer ties between drug trafficking and environmental crimes. And this has been documented in different parts of the Amazon, whether through the use of the same uh, drug trafficking routes or the airplanes that are used to, to take equipment or personnel. Um, they're also used for drug trafficking and possible investment by the major uh, criminal networks involved in drug trafficking, such as PCC based in Sao Paulo or Comando Vermelho based here in Rio de Janeiro, which have a series of alliances in the north and northeast of Brazil. So what are the repercussions for policy? Three quick points. First, we need to we need more research on the links between environmental crimes and other modalities of criminal activity. And I mentioned drug trafficking, but there are many others in human trafficking. Arms trafficking is another one. We also need law enforcement not to be so compartmentalized. Sorry, somebody's using it And finally, we need an international cooperation to take this into account, uh, this multifaceted nature of environmental crimes so that better responses are elaborated, but also more prevention is uh, built at the local, national, but also international level. I'll stop here because someone is drilling next door <laughs> into the wall, but I hope that you've been able to hear me and I, I look forward to the questions and answer. Although I apologize that I have to leave a little bit early to pick up my children at school. Thank you. Thank you, Adriana. We were able to hear the whole thing except for just one small drilling there. So thank you very much. Um, Next in our presentation is Marcos Alan Ferreira, uh, who's an expert in criminal governance in Latin America. So your seven minutes, Marcos, thank you. Thank you, Andrea and, and Carolina to organize this panel. Well, I will share some um, short notes about criminal and hybrid governance as a challenge to understand peace in Latin America in particular. No? And, I am currently developing uh, a research with colleagues of University of São Paulo, uh, trying to understand how this, uh, this, uh, the governance, in, especially in urban areas, uh, conducted both by formal uh, actors like states and informal actors like organized crime, are central to understand our challenges to peace that's totally different when we compare to other parts of the world. And, First, and, uh, um, we begin with the assumptions that the criminal governance creates some blockage against peace formation in urban space of Latin America, which are approaching the scale of violence present in civil wars. This informal governance undermines the process of peace formation supported by civil society in two ways. First, maintaining 
levels of violence and also exploiting cultural and structural violence, but also pushing the state away from citizens. So, um, and uh, I, as I argue with some colleagues in, in recent publications in which we are developing this, this, uh, this idea, of course, taking into account all the publications that deal with the rebel and criminal governance, is that it's not only important to understand how operates this kind of governance in urban areas of Latin America, but also how um, this kind of actors and, um, and the way that they work in the suburban areas in Latin America also um, uh, creates uh, some blockage to peace in particular, no? It's different uh, if we compare other parts of the world like um, Sub-Saharan Africa or even some parts of Asia in which the blockage to peace is linked to ethnic conflict and so on. And we argue that it's central to understand how the, the, the criminal organizations also create some rules and governance and then, and then impacting this piece in particular. So in a recent publication with a colleague from the University of Manchester, Professor Barbara Richmond, and we um, uh, developed this idea that where the state's monopoly of violence fails to provide the basic needs of citizens in terms of physical protection, human dignity, and social security, mostly in areas with high levels of structural violence, there's an increasing possibility of the emergence of areas that are not governed by the state. In such settings, criminal organizations have the capacity to create norms and rules, provide security services, and raise taxes in the territories under control. And of course, this, um, um, this phenomenon in particular block other potential uh, um, an agency of local actors that can work to, to improve the situation of this, uh, of this space that and suffer because the criminal violence and criminal governance in particular. When we talk about this, um, this uh, concept that uh, we, we think that apply perfectly to understand Latin America, it's important also um, to understand that this criminal governance has some steps. No? In, in general, the criminal organizations begin uh, its way to govern Firstly, to internal governance, controlling and imposing norms for its own members. And then in the next step, you will see a, a governance for the criminal market in particular. And, with, and when we think about South America in particular, the management of the listed business of cocaine trafficking is central. And in some areas, and this is particular um, strong in Brazil, Central America, Colombia also, we see um, a governance from the criminal organizations that not only control the list markets or for the internal operation of the, these organizations, but also um, control and impose norms for the people in general. And this brings another important discussion that I recently tried to develop with other two colleagues, and Marília Pimenta from FECAP and Marcel Soares from Federal Fluminense, is uh, that's the phenomenon of the hybrid governance. We argue that not, not only it's important to understand how operates the governance of the criminality in areas like we see controlled by PCC in Sao Paulo, the Primeiro Comando Capital in Sao Paulo, or Comando Vermelho in Rio de Janeiro, or even uh, Família do Norte in, 
that is not so strong as was in 2017, but it's still an important criminal organization in the Amazon area, especially in Manaus. But it's also important to understand that in areas, in some urban areas of Brazil and Central America in particular, we see a kind of hybrid governance in which uh, we see the presence of different sources of authority in the same space where violence, rules, and moral conduct are managed by both by legal and illegal actors. So the people in these areas in particular uh, try to manage their lives and in, a, in, in, a, in a way in which we see authority of the state and often the state in, in a repressive way some, and sometimes bringing violence also and at the same time trying to, uh, to follow the rules of the criminal organizations that operate in the areas. This that we, we are calling the hybrid governance. And the hybrid governance has the following variables that we see in Rio de Janeiro, but also in other parts of Latin America in particular. First, the coexisting parallel and political judicial systems. For example, an example is the debates of the Primeiro Comando da Capital in São Paulo, in which the, the, they, they, they make some informal trials for the people that not respect the rules, but at the same time, the state is also there. No? We see also variations of, on the competition for territorial and violence control, variations also on violence explosion. In general, when we have a competing criminal organizations in the same area, you see that this, uh, this equilibrium will be will not exist and the violence will increase in this particular place. Different types of legitimacy and also different scales of illegal activities. So just to conclude, and this short note is to show that if you want to understand the organized crime in Latin America and South America also, it's central to reconceptualize some discussions like for example the state has really the monopoly of violence in latin america in particular or we see a kind of hybrid governance in which compete the state or we see in the same space the state and the criminal organizations how can we understand um, uh, these classical concepts when we we think about the contemporary latin america in particular so this is uh, just some short ideas that i would like to to share by now and some of these ideas are in these two publications that I'm sharing in these last um, slides, okay? So many thanks, Andrea, and I conclude here. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Marcos, uh, for a very interesting and for keeping to the time as well, but very interesting presentation. So um, for the rest of you, start for the audience, start thinking about your questions. We have another two presentations, and then we're going to open up the floor to questions and participation. So next is Concepcion Anguita Olmedo. She's Professor of International Relations and Organized Crime and Terrorism at the Faculty of Political Science and Sociology of the um, Complutense University. And she's also a researcher at the Complutense Institute of International Studies in the area of international security and international relations. Concepcion. Thank you very much, Andrea. I think uh, you can hear me now. 
Yes, perfectly well. Ah, I'm sorry. Okay, okay, okay. I'm going to, to start now. Uh, my presentation is about the implication and impact of the relationship between organized crime and extractive mining, trafficking as a manifestation of violence against uh, women. Bueno, criminal organizations carry out criminal activities such as illicit trafficking in drugs, arms, and people, among others, which have profound economic, political, and social consequences in those countries. In this, in this sense, we can point out three characteristics of the action of organized crime, violence, corruption, and illegal extractive mining that generates related businesses such as trafficking. The use of violence by criminal groups is an instrument of power and control not only over the other criminal group, but also over the, the population and the state. This violence is related to the ends it's pursues. The second characteristic is the high level of corruption. Organized crime groups need security in order to operate, which is with links are established between the state through, through public officials and transnational organization crime. This uh, clientelistic relationship provides an umbrella of legality and even impunity for certain illegal activities carried out by criminal organization in all spheres and leads to the capture of the state, which generates greater insecurity with institutions and the expansion, and the expansion of criminality. The third characteristic has to do with the extractive industries, mainly mining, where natural resources are alienated, especially through criminal organization. In this extractive context, legal and illegal capital merge, and a new region order is generated where it is difficult to distinguish the illicit from the illicit. Illegal mining is not a problem of a single state, but affects extractive mining country with weak legislation. In this extractive dynamic, organized crime group see a very lucrative business, not only for the extraction itself, but also for the related business that are generated. One of the groups that suffer the violence of organized crime is the group of women who not only occupy a marginal role, but also became victims. In the extractive industry, mainly main gender inequalities are underlining, and women suffer discrimination and violence by criminal organizations that commodify and objectify women. Trafficking for sexual exploitation, as well as labor exploitation, is a common problem in all mining areas. Without doubt, there are breaches and corridors that supply the mining centers, especially those located in border areas with other states or those that are difficult to access for the authorities. Not only adult women, but also minor, are the target of organized crimes straight in Guatemala to a serious violation of human rights. In conclusion, we can say that there is no doubt that there are links between organized crime and as, a, as an actor generator of violence and corruption. Extraffic industries, mainly illegal and related businesses that are generated such a trafficking. I remind you disposal to answer any question from you, you can. Thank you very much. Thank you, Concepcion. You, you um, just gifted, you just, uh, 
gave uh, three minutes to uh, Carolina. <laughs> very lucky, Carolina. Thank you very much, and thank you for keeping the time. Um, Carolina Sampo is our uh, um, fifth and last presenter of uh, today. She has a PhD in social sciences and a master's degree in international studies. She's a bachelor, so we're going from newest to oldest uh, degree, a bachelor in political sciences. Um, she does many more things, but she said, no, just say those little things and that's it. So I, I'm not gonna say much more, but you Google her and you're gonna find so much about her. Carolina, your seven minutes, thank you. Thank you so much, Andrea. And thank you to all my colleagues to be a part of this crazy initiative. We are trying to, to share with you all there. Thank you so much. Okay, I will share my presentation. I will try to stick to the time. I will stick to the time. Let me just put the, all the screens so you can see the, the images. The idea of this presentation is to give you um, just a glance of what we are working with Valesca Troncoso. Uh, actually, we finally got a paper accepted, but this is part of a bigger um, research project. So just please keep in mind, especially for those who are not from Latin America, that as Marco mentioned, Marcus mentioned before, cocaine is the most important drug uh, in the region, and it's what criminal organizations use actually to do all their business, even though they have many other business uh, they were with, but this is the most important one. Uh, drug trafficking is what make criminal organizations in our region um, to develop. So um, bear in mind also that uh, the growth of uh, coca bush cultivation and also cocaine manufacture has been uh, incredibly high for the last years, and this has have an impact in the democratization of cocaine. It's not only one organization or cartel that has the monopoly of the cocaine. There are many organizations. It's a big fragmentation business, business right now, except from the PCC, as uh, Adriana mentioned before. And you also have to keep in mind that the pandemic, uh, I don't know, deepened the tendency that already existed that the use of the seas in order to traffic cocaine. So just to share with you, uh, this is not the last, but the previous UN report on, on war drugs, drugs. Uh, and this is the map on the trafficking, on the cocaine trafficking. So as you can see uh, from Colombia, Peru and Bolivia, which are the producing countries, uh, we feed, we the global south feed the global north. Uh, especially the US and Europe. And from Europe, we fit um, the, the Middle East, Asia, and new markets such as Australia, New Zealand, uh, and O. As uh, uh, Andrea has mentioned before at the beginning of the, uh, this chat, um, some things have changed considering cocaine trafficking, especially the fact that in former years, the US was the most important market, 
But in the last few years, Europe has become more and more important to this business, especially not only because Europe is a destiny itself, but also because it's a door to Middle, to the Middle East and to Asia. And these new markets are important because they um, make the product much more profitable and much more expensive. So criminal organizations are focusing more and more in taking the cocaine to Europe, sometimes through Africa, as you can see in this map, and then from, from there to Asia and the Middle East. And you have to bear in mind that most of the trafficking is, is done using containers. And these containers are only scanned in um, about 2% of all the containers in the world are scanned. So there are actually very few possibilities that um, uh, container with cocaine is discovery if you don't have the data, if you don't have someone that tells you where to find the drug. Uh, it is important to understand that criminal organizations are rational actors. There are entrepreneurs, there are um, businessmen. So sometimes even for us, it, it, is, it seems to be a route that is not very profitable because you have to, I don't know, go down from Colombia to Buenos Aires, Montevideo, or whatever. And then you have to go to Africa and then to Europe and from there to New Zealand or whatever. But these uh, decisions also has to do with the idea of keep the risk low. It doesn't matter if the um, price of the trip is high because that price is going to be part of the price of the selling of the drug at the end. So to keep the, the market flowing, uh, they will use the, um, the rise in the cost to fit the, the final price. Uh, with Valeska, we wrote cocaine trafficking from non-traditional ports examining the cases of Argentina, Chile, and Uruguay. Uh, we are, we, then you can, when, when it's published, it will be published in, in a few days, hopefully. Uh, and then you can check some of the things I was speaking about, uh, the flow of cocaine in South America, the use of new port with less control that are not so close to the production areas and not close or not so close to the traditional transit areas such as Brazil, Santos port, for example. Uh, the importance of this port is not only that they have less control, but also, also that they don't rise red flags in the arrival port. So it's easy for these containers, as you see, it's very difficult to take control of these incredible ships with so many con containers on it. Um, so if the, the if the container doesn't rise a red flag, it's pretty difficult for them to get scanned. And import with a lot of trade movements, it's much more difficult for law enforcement agencies to, to keep an eye on it. Uh, and it is important also to highlight that 
in the case of Uruguay and Argentina, the way the waterway that is used to take out um, drugs and other things, of course, from Paraguay and Bolivia, which are landlocked. So in order to finish this presentation, uh, I think that the most important remarks are that criminal organizations always find a way to adapt. Uh, there is no one to control the sea. We only can manage what Anastasia called the doors, the door that takes out the drug and the doors that take in the drug. And in the case of the Southern Commons, it's that it has become an important area of transit. We are not so, we have not found so much drug yet, but there are a lot of seizures that showing that the trend may be that the Southern Con is getting much and much important. So that's it. If you have any question, I will be here. Thank you so much. Brilliant, excellent. Thank you so much. So with this, I think that we can um, open the floor to questions. I'm gonna, if you if you want to put the questions on the chat, um, let me see if I can. I don't think that I can um, um, enable people to actually ask questions, can I? No. So um, I'm going to read out a question. An award. I, I see Awad El Karim, you've got your hand raised. If you want to write your question on the chat, I can read it out for you. Um, so we have a question from Alex Duran from Bogota, Colombia. Um, and I, anybody who wants to answer it can, can answer it, I think. Uh, how do criminal groups negotiate governance with other actors, such as formal and informal community organizations and local administrations? Does this change depending on the type of organized crime manifestation or illicit economies prevalent in the areas? Over to you, the experts. Michael, do you want to start? Yeah, thank you, Carolina. Yeah. Uh, uh, just uh, make some um, short comments about that. Thanks, Alex, Duran, for the question. Um, I think that depends the which criminal organization we are talking about. Of course, that we can make some generalizations about some variables when we talk about criminal criminal governance and hybrid governance, but the way and how they operate depends of the business and depend how hegemonic the group is in a particular area, or even and if there is competition in a, in a particular area in, in general. No? What we see, of course, is that some uh, organizations are more uh, developed, let's say, in, in the criminal governance and the gang rule to the civilians in general. For example, um, a case that I examined a lot in my, in my career that Primeiro Comando da Capital, for example, they operate not only the illicit business of uh, cocaine trafficking, but also they have control of uh, several Brazilian prisons, especially in states of Mato Grosso do Sul and, and Sao Paulo. 
and and sometimes to to operate some community organizations need the the approval let's say to, to the criminal organization but also just to conclude um, an important aspect that i that i note said in my and field work in my field works on pcc for example is that the the governance is different depending to the civilians in general and the enemies you no know, they have different and kind of norms and rules and for example in the trials you no know, if uh, something happens that a civilian did in a in a neighborhood that's controlled by pcc they they work in some way in general and not with harsh punishments, but when we are talking about a, a criminal that's another criminal organization, then uh, the, the 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 punishment will be more strong, even with that and so on. Also, even the depending who is the actor that this criminal governance is operating, and will change the way of a criminal organization will will deal with a problem in a particular territory. Brilliant, thank you. Anybody else who would like to add anything? Yeah, just a, just a few yeah. things, just a few words. Thank you, Andrea. Uh, I, I, I don't think that um, manifestation of organized crime or the, the kind of illicit economy we are talking about shall change the way criminal governance is taking place. Uh, and I was thinking, because it's, very, it's a very interesting question what Alex posed, because it may happen that they negotiate in some point. I don't know, for example, I was thinking on different cases, but I, I'm actually convinced that they don't negotiate uh, with civil society. They work in order to gain legitimacy, through cooperation, through services and good provision, but they may be able to negotiate with some local actors, local political actors. I am thinking on small areas with, I don't know, with um, political figures that may need uh, criminal organizations to gather some um, territorial points together and maybe have some exchange of votes there. Um, they may have some political capital available in order to deal and to negotiate with, um, with political figures, with local political figures, I mean. I don't think that this is the case when you go broader and when you go to a state or province level or even to national level. So that's it. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. So we have um, three questions lined up. The first one um, is Regine Schönenberg from the Free, the Free University of Berlin. And this is a question for Adriana. Did you find examples of the relationship between local gangs, militias, and incoming organized crime groups like the PCC or the Commando Vermelho? Then we, we will have um, um, Rona Rizquez and Isabel Eaton. Adriana. Um, I, I'm just not clear on the question. Is she referring to environmental crimes or is she talking about Rio de Janeiro? That's, um, for example, in Acre. 
Well, what we in our research, what we have seen is uh, two things. First, that you know most of the groups that we might call militia in the region, they are formed by farmers, um, as you know, ostensibly as self-defense forces to protect land. But in fact, uh, what they end up doing is, uh, you know, carrying out or helping to carry out the invasions of land, especially illegal invasions of indigenous lands and conservation units. And for this, of course, they are armed. Um, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's almost a rule uh, in, in that part of the country. The other type of armed group that we see um, forming almost ad hoc is around mining camps. Um, because they tend to concentrate so much machinery and personnel. Often they are also implemented in very remote areas of the Amazon, especially in states where the rivers are not navigable. And so they also uh, either are armed or they uh, take along armed uh, security guards who then become a little bit more organized. And so the category of militia is a little bit difficult to delineate within that particular setting. But what we see in the current scenario is that there seems to be an influx of arms, especially from domestic sources, um, but uh, along the border also of international trafficking of arms uh, that fuel the constitution of these groups. To what extent are they linked to the PCC and the Comando Vermelho and their respective allies? This is still very incipient. There are small cases and documentation of this, but it tends to be focused on urban areas or area near the large cities within the Amazon, because um, as Marcos mentioned, these groups dominate um, the carcerary system and they tend to be uh, uh, urban. So we need to understand both the ur urban and rural dynamics and then look at the linkages, but I would say not exaggerate because in Brazil, it does seem to be very incipient. Whereas in Colombia, those ties have been documented for decades. Thank you. Thank you, excellent. So before you go off to pick up your kids, there's another one for you. Uh, Rona Rizquez asks, have you identified any important and powerful roles um, of the Venezuelan non-state armed groups in the ecosystem of Latin American criminal gangs. Is that for me as well? I would think so, because it's ecosystems, but perhaps not. I'm no, not I don't sure think so. I think okay, I'm sorry, I cannot see the name, is referring to Latin American criminal gangs as a whole. Oh, um, the ecosystem um, of criminal gangs. It, okay. I think so. I'm not sure about that. Maybe if so he clear it, clarified. Anybody who wants to answer them. I don't know, Marcos, maybe? No, I don't know how I'm, I'm really so about the Venezuelan setting. I don't know. <laughs> I, I prefer not comment because I don't know about Venezuela. Sorry. Neither do I. I'm so sorry. We really don't know about Venezuela. Andrea, I, I can you. say something. Yeah, uh, go on. Yes, go ahead. Sure. Okay. So, uh, what we have observed is that within Venezuelan territory, uh, new criminal networks have arisen or old ones have been uh, reinforced due to gold mining, which is rampant uh, 
And some of these networks do seem to have either the implicit or explicit backing of the Venezuelan state. And there are also reports of these groups um, crossing borders or acting as part of transnational networks, um, especially in, Brazil, in the case of Brazil around um, Roraima, which uh, borders Venezuela, and where we have vast evidence that illegal mining is taking place, especially in the Yanomami uh, indigenous land. Now, mo the, most of the perpetrators there are Brazilian, but there are reports of Venezuelans crossing over. Um, and I believe there are also uh, reports of Venezuelan networks operating on Colombian soil. But these are not, sometimes the, the anti-migration discourse, you know, conflates this with uh, these criminal gangs. And from what I know, they operate very independently of the migratory networks of people that are fleeing from the situation in Venezuela. So I wanted to add that that should not be conflated. Brilliant, thank you. So you see, it was Adrian after all. So um, the, uh, we have another question from Isabel Eaton. She asks, what's flying under the radar when it comes to organized environmental crime in Latin America right now? Put otherwise, what's not getting attention that we should be looking at more closely? This is again, I think for you, uh, Adriana. Oh, sorry. Um, oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah, what's what's flying under the radar? What what should be paying more attention, and we are not looking very closely at. Okay, I'll be very quick because I need to go. I apologize. I need to go uh, pick up my kids from school. But when it comes to environmental crimes, I think one area, and we are researching this at at CIPA, We have forthcoming publications. Is financial crimes that are associated with um, illegal mining and other environmental crimes. And of course, there is a literature on the laundering of not just money and gold, but also other types of assets that come from environmental crimes. And these are very serious, not only because they present massive tax evasion, but also because um, they, uh, they, you know, they, they're closely tied to the legal trade in forest commodities, especially to um, the European Union, the Great Britain, uh, United States, and a few Asian markets. And so untangling what's legal from what's illegal is a task for international cooperation, definitely. And this requires a lot more investigation. So with that, I have to leave you, but thank you so much to the organizers for such a thought-provoking discussion. Thank you for your brilliant presentation and answers. I think that this is not necessarily the same Isabel, another Isabel asking Carolina, great to see these new routes uh, pointed out. How flexible do you think these routes are? Once a delivery got seized, do you think they directly switch between routes or are not, are not able to? Thank you, Andrea. Thank you so much for the question, Isabel. Uh, actually, you know, like criminal organizations have like a portfolio, like different ways they can take the drugs out of the continent. It's not only 
maritime route, uh, maritime routes is not only taking into account one port or the other. As I mentioned, with Valesca, we study Buenos Aires, Montevideo, and San Antonio. But we are also aware that there is a lot of other ports, especially in Chile, that may be taken into account. It's very easy, actually, for criminal organizations to, to switch the rules. Of course, they give priority to the ones that they know that actually work. They take into account that, that they may be able to lose around 20% of the, of the cargo. They, they take in, that into account before doing the, the, the shipment. They know this is part of the, the, the cargo they can lose during the, the, the shipment. But as I said, it's, it's very easy for them, for example, to take the drug out of the, of the region through Santos. But during the last two or three years, Santos has become much more conscious on the drug and control has been improved. So this has forced criminal organizations to search for other routes, uh, other ports to take the drug out. It doesn't mean that they don't use that port anymore. They use it, but they have another alternative. So once uh, a route, a new route is discovered, they don't stop using it. Maybe they stop using it for a couple of months or something like that, or they can distract the attention from one route to the other. And that's something that appears a lot in our research too. People that says that it rings a bell that Chile seems to be the third, the third port uh, from which cocaine is coming to Europe. So sometimes these uh, shipments are not so big, so it, it is weird, you know? And sometimes we think that it is possible that someone gives law enforcement agency the data of the Chilean port, knowing that a bigger shipment will be leaving through, I don't know, Ecuador or Colombia, or maybe even Peru. So. Of course, routes are not static. They keep changing the whole time, but they are not thrown away because one seizure. They are very flexible. And as I said at the beginning, they have like a portfolio of options. They choose from that and they mix them. Excellent, thank you. Um, so we have another question again from um, Isabel um, Eaton. Um, there's, there's maybe environmental, and we've uh, and we've already said goodbye to Adriana. But perhaps uh, the, the rest of you can um, point um, to answers here. Um, she says that there was an excellent recent media article, probably the Guardian, about the challenges of ensuring supply chain legitimacy, fraud, and criminal networks that are benefiting from illegally purchased cattle entering the meat supply chain in Brazil, thereby aggravating severe environmental degradation. Any comments about the extent of the problem in and outside Brazil? 
you know anything about the illegal um illegally purchased cattle and how that enters into the meat supply chain and i don't know what a cattle is cattle vacas de ganado ah, okay no i <laughs> know oh, it's not that my, my no, issue in particular what, what i uh, just to make a, a very short comment on this no that's uh, while because the the current and brazilian government and has several issues regarding the environmental degradation this issue is coming to to the media by now but this is a problem that is not from today no uh, they use by illegal cattle to send meat to Europe and North America in particular is an old issue. And of course, because the, the loose and, and political public policies regarding environment, the, of course, this, this problem is getting worse now, but it's not a new one. Just, just a short comment. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. So um, we have another one from Philip. Mirolovic um, asks, according to your to Carolina, according to your research, how big is the part of cocaine trafficking from Latin America that is done by gangs from the Balkans? I cannot tell you about percentage. I cannot tell you that this is a static, actually. I think that this have changed in the last few years, actually. And if we take, and Marcos can broaden on this, I got deep and I think so. But I think that, I don't know, a couple of days, a couple of years ago, maybe the, the, the gangs from the Balkans, also other kind of traditional type mafias were very important in taking off the shipments. I mean, local criminal organization used to take the drug up to the, to the port and then the traditional mafia will take it from there. But I think that especially PCC has grown so much that is actually taking care of that shipment too. So uh, it has been like movement. No, it, in the in this two or four e in two or three years, uh, we have changed from the PCC taking the drug to the port, and right now PCC is taking the drug to Europe or to Africa directly. So I I think that maybe these uh, traditional type mafias has has loosened a little bit of the market here. It doesn't mean they have lost the business, but maybe they have to share some. But as we have said at the beginning, there is such a flood of cocaine in South America right now. There is a lot can be share marketing. Uh, Andrea, if I can just a uh, uh, short comment on this. And uh, many thanks Philip, for the question. I heard, um, several times in interviews with the uh, people that works in Brazilian federal police and so on, that this connection with the Serbian mafia especially is like a, a, a connection because the business, no? PCC control the logistic part in the, in the South America, 
and then make some agreement with the mafias, especially in the Balkans and also in Italia, uh, Italy, to bring this cocaine to Europe in particular. And also we have some public investigations in Brazil that's open documents, everyone can find this, in which some people that's probably linked to Serbian mafia was arrested uh, in Brazil doing this kind of um, business with Primeiro Comando da Capital. So I think this uh, is like a, a, a agreement between criminal gangs that we, that we can see clearly in which the a criminal organization in South America control the logistics here and then they deliver the cocaine to the to continue these logistics to Serbian mafia or in Drangheta and all. Thank you so much. So we have a, another 10 minutes. We have to finish up Lee, at a quarter past, whatever your time is, whatever you are. Um, I'm gonna now um, allow you panelists to ask each other questions if you have questions. Um, and uh, perhaps I'm gonna take the liberty to ask a question myself. Um, um, something that perhaps was not talked about is the links between there's organized crime groups and terrorism and more ideologically driven groups. What, what is, is there complementarity? Is there increasingly also a competition? How do you see? I know it's a super general question. Take whatever part of, part of the world you want. What do you think is the, the relationship um, and the similarities and differences between um, the, um, the, the way uh, terrorism and organized crime um, act internationally or transnationally rather. Maybe I can uh, answer uh, the, the question. Sorry, by my English, uh, I don't practice uh, uh, a lot. I'm going to, to try to establish the relationship between uh, organize, uh, crime organization, crime and terrorism. Now it's, it's a relationship that they need mutually they need mutually because um crime organization crime has the 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 root the, las rutas the the roots and uh, have the um, um Mercado Negro, sorry, I, I can understand, I, I can explain in, in the black market. El black, black market. market, okay. And the terrorism uh, have the money and need, uh, for example, arms or, for example, um, other um, other uh, instrument to the to the um, the act of terror. Uh, so it's a relationship now that they need uh, mutually, but is different the organized crime and the terrorism. The terrorism have a, only an objective, uh, ideological objective, and the organized crime has an uh, economic objective. Uh, for example, in Africa, uh, there are a lot of uh, relationships between terrorism and organized crime, but only because they need uh, mutually, not because uh, organized crime uh, like to um, to to reach the power or or to change the politics and the and the terrorism yes they they can change the the political the structure the structure and the government and I think it's only for a, a, a relationship 
we need, no, we need mutually. Only I think uh, I think is this. Sorry, because uh, I don't practice my English uh, a long time ago, and I I forget a lot uh, the word. Thank it's, you. It's perfectly understandable everything you said. Carolina, Marcos. Carolina, quieres comentar algo? Sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead, and then right. I think that, and especially in the 2000s, there are a lot of discussions about the links between terrorist organizations and the criminal organizations, especially in tri-border. No? But few evidence were, were found about this, and especially the links between Hezbollah and cocaine trafficking. But what um, it's important is when necessary, some criminal organizations are able to use terrorist tactics to, to maintain control. This was uh, perfectly clear, for example, in May 2006, when Primeiro Comando da Capital uh, interrupted everything in Sao Paulo, burning buses and killing policemen and so on. So I don't think that, at least in, in my research in general, clear links between this criminal organization and the terrorists, but they, if necessary, to use terrorist tactics to maintain control, they use, as PCC showed in 2006. I agree actually with Marcos, but I would like also to highlight that even though we had, we especially Argentina had had terrorist attacks, uh, terrorism is not the main problem of Latin America, but criminal organization is, we might organize, organized crime is. I think that it's very important what Conti highlighted. In other parts of the world, in Europe, for example, in Africa, for example, it's pretty clear that uh, terrorism, terrorist uses organized crime in order to fit, to have the money, to get the money. Uh, and with the money, they are able to persuade their political um, goals. But in the case of Latin America, as Marcos pointed out also, even though we have pointed out the tree border area for a long time now, we haven't found actual proof of, of the bound with Hezbollah and the fact that the terrorist attack has been, um, I don't know, financing through the tree border area. So, uh, but I, I like what Marcos said because it happened not only in Brazil in 2006 with PCC, but also in Central America with the Maras. Sometimes this criminal organization takes extreme measures and these measures are act of, acts of terror, even though they are not terrorists. But if they keep going that way, we may think they have changed their nature. Up to now, they haven't. So it's like sporadically, they use these methods. Well, thank you very much. I, I was also thinking, now we almost don't talk anymore about the, uh, the civil war in, uh, in Colombia and the fact that there is there, starting from, from, uh, from the more ideologically driven groups that have entered into uh, organized crime. Um, Andres Paris Ramirez points out that there's a problem in terms of the definition of terrorism because there isn't a worldwide accepted definition of terrorism. So, for example, he says that in Mexico's federal penal code, 
uh, there are actions that can be labeled as terrorism that are not terrorism in other countries. We've got three minutes left. I would like to take these three minutes to thank everybody, to thank you, to thank Carolina for organizing it and for inviting me to, um, to moderate it. Thank you to the organizers of, uh, of, of this 24-hour organized crime um, seminar um, conference and to the presenters for super interesting presentations. To the audience, thank you very much for your questions and your participation. Thank you, everybody, and um, I hope that we can continue this conversation. Thank you for listening to the OC24 podcast. For more talks, have a look at the podcast feed on whichever platform you use. There are loads more to listen to. Video versions of these talks are also available on the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime YouTube channel. If you would like to share these talks around, we ask that you use the hashtag OC24 and let us know what you think. The 24-hour conference on global organised crime is brought to you by the European Consortium of Political Research Standing Group on Organised Crime, the Centre for Information and Research on Organised Crime, the International Association for the Study of Organised Crime, and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. For more information, head over to oc24.globalinitiative.net. This has been the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Thanks for listening.